according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians chapter 1 this morning, Philippians 1, looking at verses 21 and following, to live as Christ and to die as gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I do not know which to choose. Did you see my Facebook post on this the other day? Some of you that are Facebook friends um, posted an old uh, translation from the Wycliffe Bible. And in the 1300s, English was a bit different. Spelling was uh, insane. And uh, choose was spelled cheese, C-H-E-E-S-E. So I know not what to cheese. (laughs) I just made me laugh. I thought it was hilarious. So I made a little graphic out of that and posted it on Facebook and had a good time. All right, so uh, this is what we're dealing with. Before we get started, remember God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to give each believer priest the opportunity to confess anything that needs to be confessed, to be in fellowship, to be humble under the truth of his word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and your blessing upon our time this morning. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, moment by moment, day after day, year after year, from generation to generation. Father, you are faithful, and we thank you for that. We call upon your faithfulness once again this morning to lead us in the paths of righteousness, to open the eyes of our understanding that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, and so we are dealing with uh, point four in the outline, and this is the uh, section here to live as Christ and to die as gain. And um, we're down uh, presently in point four, the contrast of life and death. And when we worked our way through this and saw uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain, we viewed this as a life and death passage. It's a passage that uses both expressions, the Zoe for life and Thanatos for death, and uh, does so as a means of contrast. That's very common in, uh, in all of Scripture. Uh, Paul's not the only one that will contrast that. Jesus spoke of life and death issues. Um, a lot of the prophets, Isaiah, very big on speaking on life and death issues. David in the Psalms. There are many places in the Bible where you have a juxtaposition of vocabulary and concepts that, uh, that relate life and death. It does seem, though, interesting to me, uh, and I don't know if uh, maybe I'm overemphasizing something, but it seems to me that in many of the places that Paul is stressing life and death, he's almost doing so in a beside the point kind of way. That he's making a point uh, such that the contrast of life and death is almost beside the point. uh, In that he uses that venue, he uses that contrast in order to illustrate a larger principle or to expand thinking, for example, such as here, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so we realize that the the real tragedy would be bringing shame upon the name of Jesus Christ, whether you live or die. That really, whether by life or by death, when you see that expression in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body. And so really life and death is beside the point because the real point he wants to make is to exalt Christ, not to be put to shame. And that's the real driving factor in his prayers, in his concerns, in his focus. And because he says whether by life or death, like that's just beside the point. Those are just circumstances and details. And whichever way it goes, whether he lives or whether he dies, the real point is he wants to magnify Christ. And so his choice comes down to that. Anyway, um, and it seemed to me when I looked at some other passages that, uh, and, and remember we put the chart up to show you that, that uh, Paul is not a common user of, of Zoe or, or Thanatos, not like John is. And that the bulk of the, of the life, the Zoe usages uh, in the New Testament are, are the Apostle John in his Gospel and First John and Revelation. Um, that Paul does not use Zoe or Zao as frequently as, as, as John does. And so when he uses them, 
uh, in these other passages, it's, he's making a point, but it's like he's making a larger point so that life and death become beside the point. And that's what I've been trying to say now for the last couple of classes. Uh, like Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20, our life in Christ uh, is Christ living in us, right? The life that I now live. And so um, we'll make this our one final time to go through these verses. And, uh, and then if I am overemphasizing uh, the, the thing, then this will be the last time I do so. But to me, it, just, it struck me in such a way that, that I wanted to share this and then hopefully expand our thinking uh, accordingly. And so uh, Galatians 2.19 says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. There's a lot of things we die to when we die in Christ. We die to the law, we die to uh, sin, right? We had a whole list of those things when we were teaching this in uh, the Galatians series, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. And so this shows what happens when we get saved. We have a new way to live and it's not me anymore. It used to be me. The, the life of the unbeliever is all about I, 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 I. Well, no more, all right? Because it's no longer I. It's now Christ. And uh, we see this here. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so that's the, the larger point, larger than, than uh, life and death, larger than just whether you're physically alive or physically dead or even going to heaven when you die, the larger impact here is while we're here in the flesh, it's not us anymore. It's all Christ in all that we do and every thought, word, and deed focused on the glory of Jesus Christ. We also had 1 Thessalonians 5 uh, and verse 10 uh, in an interesting text related to the rapture of the church and the second advent in an eschatological context. Physical death is not an obstacle to the bride's life with Christ. It's another uh, life and death passage, 1 Thessalonians 5.10. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, okay, now that's the concept of life and death. It uses different vocabulary, but it's the concept. Whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. So He died for us so that we can live. Whether we're awake or asleep when the trumpet sounds is beside the point that the whole bride is going to be reunited with Christ at the rapture. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And the rapture of the church, the the bride of Christ, this is the only marriage ever in the history of marriage that survives physical death because uh, physical death is not an obstacle. Beyond physical death, we have our eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Every other marriage in the history of marriage ends with physical death. That's the termination of the marriage. That's why the marriage vow is until death us do part. Because death ends the the temporal human relationship of marriage. It does not end the mystical union of Christ and the church. That is an eternal union. Our passage in Philippians 1, I call it a win-win. Living and dying is a win-win. And uh, we'll see that because living means uh, sticking around to bear more fruit, to glorify Christ even more, to edify saints even more. So that's a win. If uh, if you're going to live longer and bear more fruit, that's a win. But if you're going to die, that's a win because to die is gain. And the very word gain is a synonym for winning. In fact, it's translated winning in uh, Matthew and in other passages. And uh, that was another quirk on the, uh, in the Wycliffe Bible. Winning in the 1380s was spelled W-Y-N-N-Y-N-G. And so uh, I, I would not have wanted to be a Scrabble player in the 14th century with, with the Wycliffe Dictionary of, of Scrabble. That would have been ferocious. I'm bad enough as it is in the 21st century with the spelling we have today. All right. Uh, Colossians 2 and Colossians 3. Living in Christ means we no longer live in the world. We no longer live in the elementary things of the world. And we've got Colossians 2.20 and Colossians 3.3 that speak to that. Again, I don't want to re-preach everything we did last week, but let's uh, take a look at it just just quickly. Colossians uh, 2.20. Understand, we don't live in this world anymore. 
we still, you know, our physical bodies still occupy this planet, uh, but don't confuse the planet with the world, okay? The cosmos is not the gay. And uh, there's different Greek vocabulary for world, uh, that is where our geography comes from in the sense of geo or gay terminology. But then there's the cosmos terminology that speaks of the arrangement, the, the spiritual uh, circumstances of this fallen world. And we're not a part of that anymore. We're delivered out of that. So um, Colossians 2.20 says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. So we've died to sin, we've died to the law, we've died now to the elementary principles of the world. The stoicheia that we studied in the uh, Galatian series. Why? As if you were still, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? You know, think about how crazy it is to live in a certain way as if you lived somewhere else, right? I mean, you don't live there anymore. You don't need that. It has no, it has no part of your current life. In, uh, in, in maybe um, I worked with an officer in the sheriff's department that was born and raised in North Dakota. And uh, what brought him to Texas? North Dakota, okay? <laughs> Cold and snow and and he, it's, a, it's hilarious. He tells the story that he put the snow shovel on the roof of his car and he just drove south until somebody said, what is that? <laughs> That's why, you know, he realized, okay, I'm going to live in Texas. This is, uh, this is where I need to be. And he's never used the snow shovel since, okay? And so that illustrates what this doctrine is telling us. Why as if you were living in the world, okay? Why as if you were living in North Dakota do you still keep tire chains, you know, snow chains in your trunk or, or a snow shovel on your roof or, or uh, you don't need to keep those things. You don't need to live that way here. You're not in North Dakota anymore. And that's the whole point. We're not in this cosmos, we are now aliens and strangers. We've been delivered out of the domain of darkness. We have been delivered into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so, as if you were living in the cosmos, you're not. So stop submitting to these decrees. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And, uh, and the whole thing of, of the you know, man-made religion and rules that, of, of pure legalism that have no value. They might appear that way. I like verse 23. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. There's hordes of people that are infesting churches like that day in and day out. And it seems like, ooh, this must be holiness because I'm avoiding all these things that would otherwise be fun. <laughs> Whatever. And, and so they, they, they have this list of things they don't do anymore and part of their you know, being holy and suffering for Jesus and whatever. And, and it appears to be good, but notice it has no value against fleshly indulgence. Legalism is not an answer to your sin nature. Legalism is just a different means of feeding your sin nature because you get self-righteous and pride and you're feeding your sin nature just as much as the lascivious person feeds his sin nature. There's no value. Legalism has no value against fleshly indulgence. Which then crosses us into chapter 3 and tells us where our attention should be focused. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. See, you've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We should be heavenly focused. And it says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So here too is another life and death passage. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. But the concepts of life and death seem almost beside the point. Because Paul's making a bigger point about walking in grace and, and, and rejecting all legalism and, and, and being heavenly focused here and now. Here and now with our new life. When, uh, our life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And I think uh, far too Christians are paying attention to that Jesus Christ has a revelation. We have a revelation in Christ. And so as, as Christ is presently hidden, not visible in this world, seated at the Father's right hand, waiting until the Father makes a, His enemies a footstool for His feet, so too we are hidden. Our life is hidden 
with Christ and God. And uh, if more believers paid attention to that, they'd quit you know, crusading and trying to transform this world or bring in the kingdom themselves by human effort. Okay, we're hidden. We're waiting for Christ to be revealed. Then we also, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So there's much bigger points being made beyond questions of, of life and death. And then the last two, and I renumbered this by the way from Wednesday, and so I uh, told you I was going to be doing that. We moved E to F and we put a new, squeezed a new E in there, so here they are. The E came from 2 Corinthians 5. Living in Christ means we no longer live for self, but it's almost a similar identical point to what we had in Galatians, but it's stressed with different wording. We're no longer living for self, but for Him who dies and rose again on our behalf. And it very much is uh, 2 Corinthians 5, um, similar if not identical to Galatians 2. But since uh, Paul made the point twice, I thought I could make the point twice. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5. Again, how did we used to live? Back when we, back when we were dead, how did we live? Okay? Does that sound funny? You know, but that's the way it is. We were dead men walking. That's the way it is as an unbeliever. But 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, um, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live, that's important. There's the all that he died for, but then there's the they who live, a subset of that. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Back when you were dead, you lived for yourself. But now that you're alive in Christ, now you can live for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. And you can recognize according to, not according to the flesh any longer. And I think that's key as well in verses 16 and 17. We identify with this new creation. We stop looking at people in fleshly terms and we're only looking at people in terms of the new creation. Those that are in Christ, those that are in Adam. And that's what it comes down to. And then finally in our point F, and this is where we have not looked at all these passages yet. We ran out of time in the midst of Romans 5. The great theology of Romans. The great theology of Romans. It will speak to matters of life and death. But almost every time it does so, it is going so far beyond physical life and physical death because it's showing the provision that we have in Christ. The great theology of Romans highlights spiritual death in Adam and eternal life in Christ, positionally, experientially, and ultimately. There is such a, a depth of doctrine to be found in the book of Romans, and when it uses life and death principles, it's doing so, but it's going be, beside the point to show the bigger issues. And, and bigger issues that will hopefully keep, uh, keep you and I on track, where we, uh, we sort them out properly, that we don't confuse justification with sanctification, that we don't confuse the, 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 the uh, positional promises with the experiential uh, commands, all right? And then the ultimate blessings that come when we're face-to-face with Jesus Christ. Positionally, experientially, ultimately, those three phases, phase one, phase two, phase three, all right? And if you're tired of hearing it, um, get untired of hearing it <laughs> and, uh, and uh, appreciate it, love it, thrive in it. Uh, get to the point that you've heard it so many times you can, you can teach it in your sleep, okay? And then teach it uh, because uh, more and more I'm, I'm encountering people that are arguing with me and they're not really arguing with me, they're just confused on positional versus experiential. They're confused on, on justification versus sanctification. And if they can sort all those things out, they'll do themselves a huge favor, and then they'll stop arguing with me. <laughs> all right? Which does me a big favor. All right. So understand, this great theology of Romans, it is presenting life and death passages in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 14. And in all these passages where we have life and death contrasts, we have bigger points being made. And you're going to see that they're centering on spiritual death in Adam versus eternal life in Christ in their positional, experiential, and ultimate context.
All right, so um, Romans 5 is, was the content on Wednesday, and uh, you can fetch that if you'd like off the website with the MP3s that are there. But verse 10, verse 17, verse 21, I want to, um, as long as we're, we're clear on this, we can move on into chapter 6. <clears throat> Romans 5, don't, uh, don't fall for the, the, the poor trap on this. Um, we have a contrast here. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. So that's on the one hand. Okay? We were enemies. We weren't, uh, we weren't family. There was nothing in us of value. We were His enemies. But He reconciled us. Praise God. So if He did that, if the death was sufficient for that, much more now, we're told, much more having been reconciled, with that as a past completed action, going past justification now, what's going to happen next? We shall be saved by His life. And so right there, that's, that's what I'm talking about, right there you can start to sit down with people and say, you know, how many different ways does the Bible use the word saved? How many ways does the Bible use the word saved for somebody that already is saved? Okay? And just point them, point them to this and say, you know, unravel this. Spell this out for me. Let me show you. Because this is somebody that's already been reconciled. Somebody that's already been justified. Somebody that's already been saved. Notice, having already been reconciled. Now, there's the much more value of his life that uh, is going to keep on saving us positionally. Or, I'm sorry, experientially. Okay? And that's what we see here. So, um, it's a much more proportion. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. The experiential salvation is a much more concept than the positional. Uh, Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. Alright, and this is the one, it's not on the screen, but it's the one that gets abused more often than anything else. They point to this one and they, they, they tell you this. They said there is no death of any kind before Adam's sin. And they will reject death of every variety. Because to them death is death. And they don't want to talk about different classifications of death. And so plant death, animal death, all kinds of other death, physical death. And, and they have all these concepts of death and they say none of that could have preceded Adam's fall. And they're forcing far too much into this verse. Through one man, sin entered in the world and death through sin. My, my doctrinal conclusion, Adam sinned. Not, you know, Eve sinned first, but the consequences were for Adam's sin, not for Eve's sin. Adam sinned, and when Adam sinned, the estate of spiritual death entered into the cosmos. Because remember, Eve was in Adam, just as we're in Adam. And so through one man, sin entered into the cosmos and spiritual death through sin. Adam's original sin is the origin of spiritual death, not physical death, not plant death, not any other kind of death you want to talk about, spiritual death. And so death, spiritual death, spread to all men because all sinned. We're all in Adam. When Adam sinned, we sinned. All right? other aspects of the law and what about before Moses and after Moses and different things. Verse uh, 15, the free, grift, uh, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to the many. <clears throat> so again, all kinds of different deaths, sexual death, there's another one. There's all kinds of different death, okay? And just as there's all kinds of different usages of life. And if you're going to engage in the fallacy of of totality transfer and put every kind of death imaginable into the consequences of of what Adam did, well then, to be fair, you've got to keep your fallacy consistent and put every kind of life imaginable into what we receive when we believe in Jesus. Okay? Because the only life we receive when we believe in Jesus is is our spiritual life in Christ. Okay? We don't get physical life when we believe in Jesus. We don't get sexual life. We don't get plant life or animal life or all the other kinds of life. 
but it's spiritual life that we get the day we place our faith in Jesus Christ. All right. Anyway, those, uh, those issues there. Uh, verse 17, if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Now, this is not just a restatement of what was said in the previous verse. This goes beyond it. This makes a larger point. And it, it comes down to what reigns, what has authority, what rules, what is sovereign. Death is sovereign. Death reigns. That uh, as sinners, as unbelievers, we are under the dominion of that sin nature. It is reigning. It is ruling. And so there is a present experiential reigning that takes place based upon what Adam did thousands of years ago. Death reigns presently through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign, present tense, ongoing reigning. This is sanctification. This is an experiential salvation. This is not just looking back to the day you got saved. This is today. This is every day whereby the righteousness of Jesus Christ and His grace is reigning. Reigning in life through the one Jesus Christ. And so there is a present reigning. Verse 21 as well. As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Presently reigns. All right? This is why no one who is born of God sins. Because this grace is reigning. His righteousness is reigning. What you have to do is grieve the Spirit, quench the Spirit. You have to go back to your old man and and that's where your sin's coming from. You have to submit to the reigning of death once again. That's where sin comes from. All right, so now that then prepares us for chapter 6. And in chapter 6, again, these life and death messages are being contrasted with a larger point being made. Romans 6, 2, may it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So it's a death and life contrast, all right, but it's making a bigger point. We've died to sin, why are we still sinning? We've died to sin, why is it a lifestyle or a death style if you prefer? Okay, why should we still live in it? Why don't we live according to the reality of our new position in Christ? And so uh, understand what happened when we were baptized by the Holy Spirit. We now can walk in this newness of life. Verse, four says, or verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? This is what the Holy Spirit did for us when we got saved. Positionally baptized us into union with Jesus Christ. Not just with Him as a person, although that's true, as a person, but also in His work. Baptized into His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, and His session. We are one with Jesus Christ through baptism. And so um, we've been baptized into His death. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might, purpose clause, but it's left in the subjunctive mood, it's left for our volitional fulfillment, we might walk in the newness of life. And we're supposed to, we're designed to, it's intended to, we're commanded to, and we might (laughs) if we choose to, if we obey, if we grow appropriately, if we allow God to be at work in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Sadly, or thankfully, many do. Let me start with a positive. (laughs) Thankfully, many do. And then, sadly, many don't. All right, many don't. But it is the design. And so knowing this, knowing this, since you know this, live it out. Do this. Since you know this, do this. Okay? And the fact that these are given as commands, how shall we who died to sins still live in it? What do you think you're doing? Don't do that. Stop doing that. And um, we too might walk in the newness of life. And then verse 10. Um, you know, we just we, these things are, are given to us as commands. There's a command in verse 11 to consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Does God give a command that's not possible to to fulfill? Of course not. 
The fact is, believers can let sin reign in their mortal body. We're just told not to. And we're given the provision so that we don't have to. Again, knowing, verse 9. Verse 10 says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. This is true of Christ, this is true of us in Christ. We are to live this way, positionally, experientially, and then ultimately. And uh, quit submitting to your sin nature again. Verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? So it's an either or. Choose you this day whom you will serve. I've had Christians tell me that you can't sin anymore when you're in Christ. Wait a minute. <laughs> your new nature doesn't sin. I'll grant you that, First John. But your old nature still can sin and you still have that old sin nature. We're not delivered from that body of death until we're dead. And so stop submitting. And uh, we can choose to be submitted to the Word of God. And what a, what a privilege that is. Um, verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you when uh, deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed for the outcome of those things is death. And you can go right back to it as a believer, so don't. But now, having been freed from God and from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. And the outcome eternal life. Okay? Positional, experiential, and ultimate sanctifications. Anyway, this is uh, there's more on this in the Hebrew, in the Roman series, and if you want more on that, if you don't think you're solid on that, if you think, well, I kind of have it, but I'm not sure I could explain it to somebody else, well then go get the, those Romans MP3s and, and listen again and again. Get solid on it. Explain it to somebody else. Keep explaining it to somebody else until it's as plain as, as the nose on your face that, uh, that this is what God expects for us to do here in the church age. All right, for the wages of sin is presently death, but the free gift of God is presently eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can lay hold of that eternal life today, and we're supposed to. We're commanded to. We're not just waiting to get there. We're going to lay hold of it today. All right, chapter 8, verses 2, 8, and 13. Romans 8, there is, uh, now, uh, the, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a great positional truth reality. We are saved, we are in Christ, no condemnation. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. So now this is, again, experiential based on the positional. Since we are in Christ, we are no longer a part of that law because okay, the law was impotent anyway. What, what could the law not do? God did. And uh, we have these verses here that talk about this. You know, if the law could have done it, then His Son didn't have to come, right? If the law could have made us perfect, Jesus Christ could have stayed in heaven. God could have spared Himself for the, the, the infinite sacrifice that He went through. But the fact is, is uh, there was no alternative. It was necessary. And, uh, and we get that. Um, but still, we have, um, because of our position in Christ, we have the blessings to be able to walk this way and give, uh, give all the glory to God. Notice verse 4, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So am I a law keeper? Not at all. But the requirements are fulfilled because I'm walking in Christ. You see the difference? I'm not living under a, a legal standard and I'm not checking off boxes and, and, and proving my, my righteousness. I'm not a legalist in any way. But because I'm walking in Christ, I'm not keeping the law. The requirements are fulfilled in Christ. He kept the law. Requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So uh, this is something else that happens that, that uh, when we go carnal. Um, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. Okay? And recognize this whole context is for believers. 
this whole context, those aren't unbelievers whose mind is in the flesh and hostile towards God. Those are carnal believers. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Understand? Again, I've encountered it. I've had Christians tell me there's no such thing as a carnal believer. There's no such thing. You cannot be in the flesh. You're in Christ. Okay, back up. Let's look at these verses again. Okay? And let me show you passages that are speaking about believers. Let me show you passages where the author of Hebrews includes himself in the warning to not uh, have an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. These are written to believers. It's a believer doing the writing that's warning himself as well as his audience that, uh, that there it is. If you think there's a sin you can't do, show me the verse. <laughs> okay? A believer can do any sin an unbeliever can do when you grieve, quench, and resist the Holy Spirit. That's our capacity. All right. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we want to walk in the Spirit. We want to fulfill these things in His grace. Verse 12, so then brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for you are living according, if you live according to the flesh, you must die. And this we classify as operational death. This is what happens. The believer is severed from our, our connection with, with God. We're in carnality. We are under operational death. The Spirit no longer empowers us. That, uh, that animating principle of, of God's grace is no longer at work in and through us for His good pleasure. We're severed. See, not condemned, because remember, there's no condemnation, there's no separation. <laughs> and so the opening verse and the closing passage of this chapter form marvelous bookmarks so that we don't get scared in between thinking that, ooh, does this mean I lost my salvation? No, no, no. Okay? Keeps us firmly grounded in what we're dealing with. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And if you think about it, I, I would love to take this verse, put it in tandem with the sword of the Spirit that is the Rhema Tutheu, the Word of God. And this is what we do with that sword of the Spirit. We're putting to death. We're stabbing these things. Putting to death the deeds of the body. So we're applying the Word of God as Jesus did. He's tempted for this and he says, no, man shall not live by, the bread, by bread alone. What did he do? He just took the Rhema Tutheu, he just took the, the sword of the Spirit and he stabbed that temptation that Satan was, uh, was throwing out there in front of him. Put to death the deeds of the body. Just kill them. It's easy to do because the flesh has been crucified in Christ, so just let that go. But nevertheless, daily, experientially, we have to be volitionally doing this. If you do so, you will live. That is, operational life in fellowship, walking in the light as He is in the light. Operational life. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And this is, uh, again, the privilege that we have. So it's a life and death context, but the point that's being made is the point of life and death is beside the point because the bigger point that's being made is our uh, walk in the light that glorifies Jesus Christ. Chapter 14. Chapter 14, we have more verses whereby life and death are placed in a contrast and yet a bigger point is being made. Romans 14, verses 7, 8, and 9. Not one of us lives for himself, not one of us dies for himself. Okay? Or at least should. <laughs> okay? I, mean, I can point fingers, you can point fingers. Paul himself could point fingers as well. But for the sake of his rhetoric and for the sake of the point he's making here, the, uh, the should is, uh, is understood. Um by design in our position in Christ, this is the way it ought to be, let's stop judging one another for the faith applications we're making. And uh, whatever the, the aspect is, if, uh, if you have an opinion and somebody has a different opinion, but you both came to your opinions based on the Word of God and how you're trying to glorify Jesus Christ, well then praise God. All right? And, and you're fine eating the meat sacrificed to idols, they're not fine eating the meat sacrificed to idols, so they choose to be vegetarian because they don't like the source of where that meat came from in Corinth. All right, fine, or Rome or wherever, okay? And uh, same thing, I've got faith convictions, you've got faith convictions, and what if they're different? What if they're different? Okay, well, 
Did you make it by faith as an application of the Word of God? Praise God. And uh, so there we have it. And so we don't judge one another. And uh, we have grace towards one another. Verse 5, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Okay? So where do you come down on that issue? And and, uh, aspects there. He observes the day, observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord and gives thanks. And guess what? It's the same with the other crowd. The one who does not eat, doing so for the Lord. That's the point is, they're living out, in their faith convictions, they're living out the Galatians 2 principle. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. They're living that out. They're making application. For not one of us lives for himself, not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, and we do, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. You see the bigger point that's getting made there? It's not... uh, In other words, we are the eternal people for whom matters of life and death are no longer the pinnacle of of all urgency. (laughs) The unbeliever, man, life and death is the pinnacle of all urgency. And there's nothing more serious than life and death. They put that up there as the pinnacle. This is of the utmost importance, the utmost seriousness. There's nothing more serious than a question of life and death. And we are in Christ, eternal beings, and for us now, life and death are often beside the point. We're in Christ living for Christ. That's a bigger point. And if I have to die in serving Christ, being in Christ, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, it's beside the point. We are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now I don't know if you ever consider why does the Bible keep putting these phrases in upside down and backwards order? You know, why does He put death first and then live? Because of this. Christ died and He lived again. Why does Genesis have evening and morning day one? Why, you know, we we would naturally want to say morning and evening. We want to start with the day and then end with the night. And then sometime in the middle of the night while we're sleeping, then a new day can start and then we'll have a day and a night and a morning and an evening. But in the Hebrew, in, the, in Genesis, the order is evening and morning, day one. The new day in the Jewish calendar always starts with sundown. And it's, uh, I believe God did so for a purpose, to show us that darkness gives way to light and the victory is light. The victory is eternal life over spiritual death. And we have that as a pattern right from day one, see, literally. Okay, and so there's more there too. But if we have this as an attitude, if we realize that our life is in Christ and we've got these uh, positional, experiential, and ultimate issues, then our eyes are open, our thinking has expanded, our capacity has increased, hopefully our grace has increased, we're more relaxed with one another, We're not judgmental against one another. We're not looking down our prideful, long, snooty nose at what it is that that other person's doing. Instead, we're loving them and praying for them and we're thankful that they're living their faith out in the way that they are. All right, so we have that. All right, that's our Romans uh, trek for this morning. Let's get to verses 22 through 26. Do you ever think out loud? You ever talk out loud while you're thinking? While other people are in the room listening? And then you kind of talk yourself through a conundrum. You go this way, you go that way, and then you finally settle on something. Paul's doing that here. And he's doing that not only where other people can listen, he's actually writing it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's preserved for us in the Scriptures. Paul thinks his way through his conundrum as he describes it to the Philippian recipients. And so in verses 22 through 26, he, he goes through this back and forth, should I stay or should I go? Okay? Long before that song was ever popular. The, uh, the um, careful. Um, 
the whole question. And the reason why he wants to stay is so beautiful because it's different than how most people want to stay. Most people have purely worldly reasons for why they want to stay in the world. They want to live longer, not because they want to bear fruit and glorify Jesus Christ. They want to live longer because they want to live longer. They want to live longer because they don't want to leave. They want to live longer because they have attachments. They want to live longer for you know, a long list of, of 30 reasons why, or however many. Okay? And, uh, and it's interesting, when you start to sort out what reasons do you have for still being here, if uh, bearing fruit, fruitfulness for the glory of Jesus Christ on behalf of others, if that's not item number one on the list, then it's not in conformity to this passage, I tell you. And, and I would, I would uh, consider what my thinking would be in that way. Anyway, um, so he's thinking out loud here. Uh, but if, if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. That's what it means. That means more fruit if I live longer. And I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. There is true pressure on him to stay, just as there's true, true pressure on him to leave. And that one's kind of a no-brainer. Who would not want to be face-to-face with Jesus Christ? Who would not want to be, uh, uh, I know I, I can't wait to have this body of sin gone, have no more sin, goodbye, good riddance, okay? Um, of course there's a desire if you understand the, I think the only way that you don't have that drive is if you just have no heavenly perspective of any kind. So he has a pressure on him, it's pushing from that side and he's being squeezed. So there's the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. But there's still the pressure to stay. That's coming from the other side. The desire to stay and bear more fruit. The desire to stay and keep serving Christ. To bear more fruit, to lay up more treasure in heaven, to edify more brothers and sisters. Specifically the Philippian saints is who he's writing to. He's looking forward to reunion with them. And that's a motivation that is, is, is just as powerful for him as the motivation to leave. Which I find curious. Hard-pressed from both directions. And uh, because that's better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Now he's back to this side again. Okay? I feel like I should be running back and forth like that speaker last year in Houston. Because <laughs> he was making two points. He was making them over and over again. And every time he made one point, he would run to this side of the pulpit and make it. And then he would run over to this side of the pulpit and make it. And he was very animated and very energetic, and I just don't share that energy and enthusiasm this morning. But it made the point, and he made it again and again and again, and I'm never going to forget it as long as I live. And that's an effective means to convey truth in such a way that people won't forget it. Um, but this is what he's saying here. He's going back and forth saying, if I live, there's more fruit. I die, I'm with Jesus. Yeah, but if I live for their sake, um, it's more necessary to remain on in the flesh, to stay in this body of sin. Man, to be this close to casting off sin forever. Well, now I've got to put it back on again. Okay? Why do you think Jesus wept in John eleven thirty five 35? When he called Lazarus back from the dead, when he brought Lazarus back? <laughs> you know? Lazarus was that close to being done with his body of sin forever. And Jesus brought him back. I think that's what the weeping was about, ultimately. Maybe it was over their sadness over their perspective, who knows, but uh, I think it was more for Lazarus' sake than, than uh, the weeping women and the other stuff that was going on there. So to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So what do you think? What's, what's Pauline theology? What's more important? My needs or their needs? My sake or their sake? Okay? Love edifies the other for their sake. Always esteeming the other is more important than yourself. Paul was willing to live longer in the flesh if the Philippians were going to benefit for their sake meant he had to endure more uh, of, uh, of being in the flesh. 
And so convinced of this, finally, <laughs> he talked himself into it, okay? And it's our patho, it's our old friend patho, it's persuaded. We're back to, he's persuaded again. You know, did the Lord persuade him or did he persuade himself? Or both? What happens when you're cycling doctrine? What happens when you're reviewing verses? What happens when you're weighing the pros and cons spiritually and considering the verses and considering the, the applications and, and when you're going through that whole exercise, are you persuading yourself or are you allowing the Word of God to persuade you? See, persuaded of this, I know, and now it comes to a conclusion, that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. That's what he's looking forward to. He just got his answer right here. He doesn't have word yet from the Romans what they want to do with him, but he knows he has his own answer of what God's going to do with him. That this uh, current uh, imprisonment is not going to result in his physical death. He just talked himself into a persuasion that this is what's going to happen. So that, purpose clause, your boasting in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. What a reunion when Paul finally sets foot at Philippi for the second time ever. And uh, the boasting that they're boasting even now and the boasting that will just abound when he gets there and all the glory for Jesus Christ in, uh, in the process. So that's what he talks himself into here on this. So understand that fit continued physical life means the fruit of labor. Continued physical life means the fruit of labor. That's the motivation to live longer. That's the motivation to not die, to not go and be with the Lord. Continued physical life means the fruit of labor. Hard work, laboring to the point of exhaustion. These are, these are common expressions of vocabulary we've done uh, on many occasions in terms of the, the, the labor of what's expected for us to do and bearing that kind of fruit. That's what it means, more work. Do we ever reach a point in the Christian walk that we could just kind of retire, sit around waiting to die? Not supposed to, Okay. Some believers do the day after they got saved. But the, the point is, staying here means more fruit, more work. There's, there's an additional work assignment. There's something in front of us. The, there's a race set before us. We haven't crossed the finish line yet. And since we haven't fought, uh, crossed the finish line yet, what's expected of us? Keep running. Keep, keep serving. Keep bearing fruit. This is the powerful pressure. In fact, the word that's used here is epithumia. Having the desire to depart. You know, that, that desire is, is lust, <laughs> okay? Lust. We know what lust is. You don't have to do that. I mean, we can, but we know what, a lust, what lust is. We can do a word study if you want, but lust is lust, right? And there's a lust to depart and go be with Jesus. But then he says there's an equal lust. There's an equal pressure. Paul says, I'm being squeezed. And so that desire to remain, that desire to bear fruit, that lust is being described in those terms. So this is the powerful pressure, the lust on the opposite side of going to be with the Lord. You know, is, is, is this characteristic of our life? Are we, are we so panting as the deer panteth for the water brook? Are we so panting for the Word of God, both to learn it and to live it, to apply it, to bear that kind of fruit? Paul was. And so he said here, I'm hard-pressed from both directions. He says, I'm being squeezed, squeezed from two directions with a lust to depart and be with Christ. A lust to stay and, uh, and bear more fruit. Putting his own desires aside, remaining in the flesh is more necessary for the Philippians' sake. So how do you solve your conundrums? You ever be, of course, we all get squeezed. We all have uh, pressure. We all have uh, conundrums where we can choose A or B. Okay? So what do we do? What's our solution? What's our application here? We could be like... Uh, um, oh, who was the Yankee uh, coach that had all the goofy expressions? Uh, Yogi Berra. I loved all those Yogi Berra expressions. And in his words of wisdom, 
When you come to a fork in the road, take it. All right, that doesn't help. What do I do? Okay. I'm hard-pressed from both sides. Well, Paul went through this, so he debated it, he prayed about it, he discussed the pros and cons, he's, he's bouncing this around back and forth, but then he settled on the idea, you know what? It's more necessary. Okay? Do you ever think of necessary as an absolute? <laughs> it's a have to. It's an absolute. If it's necessary, it's necessary. Well, what if something's more necessary? Now you've got two necessaries. How does, how does one become more necessary than the other? If they're both necessary, one can be more necessary if, in fact, the whole purpose of the Christian walk is to edify the other, to serve the other. So to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And so that's what he came down to. He used that as his rule of thumb. And, uh, you know, it's like we, uh, we have different things we use. Say, well, which is the more grace approach? Which has, which has grace, which has no grace? I'm going to go the grace road, okay? Which has, uh, which has the benefit of other in mind and which has my selfish benefit in mind? I'm going to go with the benefit of other, okay? That's my rule of thumb. If I got a fork in the road and option A is my benefit and option B is somebody else's benefit, well, what am I called to do? What is the Christian way of life if not serving the other? Esteeming the other is more important than yourself. Was Jesus thinking of himself when he was on the cross? No. And I'm, I'm to be an imitator of him. And so we have these as rules of thumb. I think grace is always a rule of thumb. Edification of others is always a rule of thumb. There's additional, you know, am I, am I glorifying Christ or am I glorifying self? That's an easy, no-brainer, rule of thumb. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want to boast in me. Boast in the Lord. And so, uh, and more of this, by the way, all these concepts we're introducing here as Paul bounces these ideas back and forth in his thinking, he's going to spell them out in chapter 2. <laughs> we're going to have Bible verses throughout chapter 2 about humbling yourself and serving the other. Esteeming the other is more important than yourself. And uh, anyway, it's going to come up in, in uh, later chapters, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. So putting his own desires aside, remaining in the flesh is more necessary for the Philippians' sake. And this is where you can say, okay, I don't like this, but I'm willing to accept this as the will of God. It's not my will, but thine be none. Because if I had my preference, I'm out of here. But it's not what I want. Finally, being persuaded of this necessity Paul's Philippian reunion is going to trigger their joyful progress. And it's, uh, it's a curious contrast here when you're looking at these verses, 25 and 26. Um, there's an abounding, there's a progress. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And it's the same word for progress we had back in verse 5. No, I'm sorry, back in verse uh, 12. He said, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So don't, uh, you know, don't be all upset that I'm in jail now because it's working together for good and there's more progress being made. Now he's turned to the same concept of progress and he's thrown it back to the Philippians and said, here's how you guys are going to have some progress. And your progress in joining the faith is going to be multiplied when I see you next at this reunion, when I'm with you, when I'm back with you again. So I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Anyway, so that your boasting in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. The reunion is going to trigger their joyful progress. All right. Well, there we go. And I think it's a good pattern for how we can solve our own conundrums. We can weigh the, the pluses and minuses. We can chart them on a ledger and say, well, this or that, this or that, this or that. And, you know, it's curious. I think in a lot of the choices we come to, you can choose either one for right reasons. I also think you can choose either one for wrong reasons. Okay? And so I think the whole point of the exercise is to make the choice we make, whichever choice we make, but to make that choice for the right reasons. And uh, that then becomes, I think, a, a big imperative as well. All right. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. 
We give you the praise and the glory, Father. Open the eyes of our understanding so we can understand not only what this passage is saying, but how we make our application in our day and age. Father, might we be imitators of Paul even as he was an imitator of Christ, that we can make these choices based upon your will, your good pleasure, not our own selfishness, our own preferences. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.